Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife, where we continue our series uh, in collaboration with the American Society for Transplant Surgeons. Uh, today, we're joined by Dr. Lisa McElroy. Uh, Lisa is currently an assistant professor of surgery at Duke, where she just started her clinical practice. She received her medical degree from Michigan State, and she completed her general surgery residency at Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. During her residency training, she took three years away from her clinical work um, for lab or professional development time, where she was at the Comprehensive Transplant Center and the Institute for Public Health and Medicine in Northwestern. Uh, in her three years there, she received a master's in health services and outcomes research. She just completed her abdominal transplant surgery fellowship at University of Michigan, and we're honored to have you with us today. Lisa, welcome. Thanks. Honored to be here. So why don't you just start off by telling the listeners why you chose transplantation as a career? Um, well, in short, I have found that it is, um, you know, the best combination of all the things that I love most about clinical medicine and surgery. I did not have a lot of exposure to transplant surgery as a medical student, Um, but rotated on the service as a junior resident. And, um, you know, it's a a diverse and uh, largely underserved patient population, which I enjoy working with tremendously. Um, The patients are medically complex. So in addition to doing these, you know, complex and beautiful operations, you get to take care of a lot of the sort of medical needs um, of, uh, of the patients, uh, both before and after. Um, and the other thing about transplant is, you know, it's really a team, um, based specialty. So we work in large multidisciplinary teams and, um, and the people that make up those teams, I think are practicing, you know, kind of like at the height of their, um, skill set. So, um, you know, the pharmacists, the advanced practice providers are, you know, medical colleagues in transplant hepatology and transplant nephrology. We all work together on a big team. And, um, and I love that about the work. So when I came into it, it just, it just was a natural love. And I think um, uh, that still holds true, you know, nine years later. in the training process. That's fantastic. And speaking of which, uh, many of us know that there are no hours restrictions since Transplant Surgery Fellowship is not an ACGME accredited fellowship. And so what was fellowship like? How did the love for the field um, kind of help you or motivate you to get through fellowship? 
Um, I think that uh, it's hard work, so there's no denying that, and a lot of it is overnight. Um, but I remember when I was a resident, I listened to this podcast. Dr. Kirk was interviewed. He talked about, um, you know, having this moment where you had to make a decision about whether or not you could be happy while you were tired. And I think for me, um, I, when I am, you know, my most tired, I am sustained by the work. And I do think there is some wisdom in that, in that you have to love what you do. And I think um, there, I will, I will not uh, deny there are moments of exhaustion um, as a transplant fellow, but I never really had a moment in fellowship where I thought, you know, I'm so tired. I just don't want to do this job. It's an unbelievably rewarding job to do. And sometimes you do it while you're tired. Um, I will say, you know, people comment to me about the lack of the ACGMA restrictions um, frequently. And um, it's true, but the ASTS has taken steps to um, place some guidelines around the training of the fellows of the fellows. And so, you know, things like days off um, and uh, paying attention to personal safety, you know, are not ignored by our um, professional society and they're not ignored, I think, by the fellowships. Um, you know, I was definitely told to like go home and get some sleep several times in my fellowship. And to be honest, I tended to not want to, um, but it was the best thing for me and the best thing for the patients at the time. So there are some regulations in place, um, but, but there's no denying it's, it can be non-traditional hours and there can be some long stretches in it. But, um, but I do think the work sort of sustains you through that because you're just doing such good for people um, that it's exhilarating. Yeah, no, as you mentioned, I mean, it's it's a lot of work. It's hard work. They're off hours. You can't pick when donors are going to happen. But there's, there have really been great strides by the ASTS to try and, you know, preserve the lifestyle of the fellow. And, you know, as you mentioned, they have the time managed policy, managed time policy where fellows have one weekend off a month and then two separate 24 hour periods where they're off. It doesn't necessarily have to be on the weekend. So there's really great strides that have been taken, I think, to try and improve the quality of life of the trainee. Um, so Lisa, what was it like finding a job this past year? You just completed your fellowship you're now at Duke. What was it like when you were looking for jobs? I mean, that's a concern when you talk to a lot of general surgery residents that they're worried about, uh, availability of jobs, or if you go and I do this transplant fellowship, am I going to get a job afterwards? What was that like for you? Um, it was stressful, but I think that after 10 years of training in surgery, um, there's no way that the process of finding a job uh, isn't going to be stressful. I have friends in vascular and trauma. Um, you know, a lot of my co-residents that I still talk to, we were all suffering the same stress, right? We're all looking for jobs after this long training process. Um, I found the job market to be favorable in that I felt like I had a good number of um, interviews um, and good options. Um, and I had, you know, guidance from my faculty so that when I was feeling um, overwhelmed or 
pessimistic about the job process, you know, they could normalize the experience for me. I worried a lot about the job market when I was making the decision to pursue transplant. And I hear that over and over again. But um, but I think there might be some, I don't want to call it hype, but I think it might be a little bit exaggerated in the minds of the sort of surgical resident um, or from the surgical resident perspective. But I think transplant as a field is getting busier and busier. Um, the number of transplants being performed in this co country is increasing every year. Um, and so uh, we need good transplant surgeons to join the workforce. And I think because of that, the job market is, um, is welcoming. So, and then now you've just transitioned from surgical resident to fellow and now from fellow to junior faculty member. Uh, what guidance or advice or thoughts about this process do you have to give the residents that are about to go through the same process? Uh, well, I would say to residents, um, you know, focus on being a good resident. I think um, I worried a lot about the future, uh, many years off in the future when I was a resident. But I think the best thing you can do to be a good fellow is to be a good surgical resident. You're preparing for that next level of training. Um, and I'd say rather than worry about um, the transition so much, I would focus on picking a subspecialty that you love or entering into general surgery if that's what you love. Um, and, and doing a good job as a resident. I think it's the best thing you can do for your fellowship. The transition to faculty is hard for me to comment on. Honestly, you know, I've been a faculty for two weeks and I changed institutions for that transition. So when you start as a faculty, you go through a lot of administrative onboarding and I'm going to be doing research and there's a lot of foundation to build um, in that regard. So um, I feel well prepared. I think, you know, the fellowship at Michigan prepared me very well. I think to be a junior faculty, but I think the transition is going to last a bit longer. So I'm not sure I can comment on it in an, in its entirety at this point. Uh, so uh, you trained at Michigan and it's a place that's big on diversity and inclusion. Uh, so what is your perspective and any comments on uh, within transplant surgery as a community? What have your experiences been with inclusivity? Um, I, I found transplant surgery to be very um, inclusive from my perspective in that when I expressed interest um, in the specialty as a junior resident, I was encouraged um, to pursue it. Um, and, you know, the, the time I spent at Northwestern where I was training and research, but also sort of existing as a part of the larger comprehensive transplant center, I found everyone to be sort of welcoming and encouraging about my entering uh, the field. Um, I think diversity and inclusivity are different concepts and it's important when you talk about them to distinguish them. Um, we know that the field of surgery overall has work to do in the area of diversity. I don't think that work is unique to transplant surgery or any other subspecialty in surgery. I don't think it's unique to the University of Michigan or any other institution. 
I think the challenges have been recognized, and I think there are leaders in all specialties in surgery that are working on increasing the amount of diversity. Um, but you can have an inclusive environment um, without diversity. You know, I was trained in my fellowship by um, seven, you know, predominantly white men who are parents and, um, you know, have partners, and I am a single African-American woman, um, but I found the environment to be totally inclusive, and I felt like I received um, the training that they would have given someone that shared their more obvious demographic characteristics. I felt um, held to a high standard. I felt advocated for and championed when it came time to look for a job, which is um, more important than you realize when you're picking your fellowship, I think. Um, and so I think Michigan is doing great things in the departments of surgery to work towards improving both the diversity of the department, but also the level of inclusivity. Um, but within the division of transplant and my personal experience, you know, I felt like it was very inclusive and, um, and I was very happy there. Um, Lisa, for any student or, or um, surgical resident that might be interested in transplant surgery, what advice would you have for them? Uh, I would say um, follow the interest. Um, and if you really love it and you're excited by it, um, which, you know, I, I think it's the best job in the world. I, I find it kind of amazing that um, more residents don't go into transplant. It's such incredible surgery and um, just such an amazing experience to get to take care of the patients that we get to take care of. And I would say if you're interested in it, you should you should see if that's where your passion lies. And if it is, then you should pursue that training doggedly. Um, I think there are tons of us in transplant surgery who um, were mentored and championed um, who are looking to return that favor. Um, and I think that um, the field is still relatively young. There's a ton of really exciting progress to be made on the, on the clinical side, on the research side. And I think it's um, a very rewarding and fulfilling career. Despite, you know, sort of bad rep, it gets about lifestyle and I think um, the very valid concerns that are out there about um, rest and wellness and uh, diversity of the workforce. I think there's really good work being done to improve all those things. And I think that um, that it is it, it's a, a worthwhile. So transitioning to our uh, clinical scenario, we have a kidney transplant recipient who is po immediately post-op in the PACU, and we get a call from the nurse uh, that the patient has low urine output. Um, patient was previously making 75 cc's per hour in PACU, which has now dropped off to 10 cc's per hour. What do we need to have on our differential as far as what may be wrong? If I got called with this scenario, you know, the first thing I'm usually thinking about is, you know, obvious things like, is the patient a little bit behind in fluid? Um, you know, is the Foley patent? Um, and I think it sort of speaks to the importance of going to see the patient. Um, 
you can have uh, very minor things lead to, um, you know, something like a, a low recorded urine output when really there's nothing wrong with the kidney. Um, that said, you always want to have the bigger things in the back of your head, like are the vessels clotted off or is there bleeding or some uh, sort of mass effect on the kidney from a blood clot or another fluid collection. Um, you know, you can often sort these things out at the bedside. Um, uh, the other thing is sometimes depending on the status of the donor and the, where the kidney came from, you know, the, it could just be the graft itself. Um, and that's important information to have, you know, while you're heading to see the patient is, is this a living donor kidney? Um, is this a, a donation after cardiac death kidney where you're sort of expecting that there'll be a higher risk of um, delayed graft function or, um, you know, um, something immunologic like that. I guess just thinking about the students and, and the, you know, surgical residents that are listening, you know, often as a fellow, when I got these calls, I got them from my um, on-call resident or one of our APPs. And I think, you know, when you think about the differential, I just said, as with many, many things, I think you learn a lot at the bedside and, and, you know, you can do more than one thing at once. So um, you can head down to see the patient. You can tell the nurse who calls you from the PACU that you want to give a little fluid. Um, you can look at um, the source of the kidney that was donated and try to get a sense of where something like ATN would be on your differential, um, as I alluded to. Um, you can, When you get to the bedside, you can kind of get a sense of, does this patient, you know, look fine or do they look like they're bleeding? Do we need an ABG to look at a hematocrit? Um, or, you know, is the Foley kinked? I mean, I've had that happen where the Foley's just like kinked under the patient's leg. Um, and, you know, after you've given sort of a fluid bolus and made sure there's nothing obvious like that, um, then you can start to think about, is it, are these bigger things an issue? Um, and generally, my practice is that if a patient does not respond to a fluid bolus and I am not expecting ATN based on the quality of the graft, um, I have a pretty low threshold to get an ultrasound just to make sure that the vessels are open, but also to make sure that there's, um, you know, not a, a collection of blood that's developed um, that's starting to push on uh, the hilum of the kidney. Um, often when that bleeding occurs, you know, it's deep in the incision, so it's not necessarily obvious from physical exam. And I guess that's all I would really add to that. All right, Lisa. Well, that was great. Um, I don't think I have anything else, but I really appreciate you taking your time out of the day and um, sharing some of your perspective and your knowledge as well. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series with ASTS, and today in conversation, we have Dr. Adil Khan. He's an abdominal organ transplant and an HBB surgeon, assistant professor of surgery at WashU. He graduated medical school from the Aga Khan University in Pakistan, then completed general surge residency at Brown. He completed his HPB fellowship uh, as well as transplant surgery at Wash, Wash U, 
He completed an advanced robotic HPB fellowship at the Carolinas Medical Center, as well as as an MPH at University of North Carolina. That's one impressive uh, resume, Dr. Khan. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Sure. Thank you for the kind words and thank you for uh, the opportunity to talk. Um, For the purpose of this podcast, we want to discuss liver transplant patients. Um, And to set the scene, this is going to be a liver patient who is now post-up day two in the ICU with the finding of LFTs um, that are on the rise. What should be on a differential when you uh, in this setting? So that's actually a pretty uh, common um, uh, post-operative finding um, in, uh, after a liver transplant. So we always start off by ruling out the worst possible thing, which in the case of a liver transplant would be vascular thrombosis, thrombosis of the hepatic artery of the portal vein. Um, other things that we need to worry about could be bleeding or a hematoma that could be causing uh, compression of the liver and elevated enzymes. Uh, it could be reperfusion injury. Uh, could also be a bile leak or a stricture or narrowing of the bile duct, which could be resulting in this. And uh, the last thing that uh, can be a possibility, though it would be a little unusual, this early after transplant would be a rejection. What would be your workup um, in this situation if you got called and they said your AST and your ALT were rising? So, uh, yeah, so as part of any workup, the first thing is to go and see the patient, see how the patient looks, you know, and look at the vital signs, see if they have any signs that they may be uh, bleeding or in pain, and uh, things to look for would be uh, blood pressure and heart rate, see if they're tachycardic or hypotensive, that would be suggestive of bleeding. Um, Look at the incision, uh, examine the abdomen. You expect them to be tender as it's post-op day two, but look for any signs that that indicate more tenderness than what you would expect. Uh, most liver transplants have a drain. It would be nice to assess what the drain has. Um, it should be, you know, a Kool-Aid color, serosanguineous fluid. But if it's very dark, that could be indicative of bleeding. And if there's any bile in it, that could be suggestive of a bile leak. Um, after that, um, you can start off with some labs, including a CBC, specifically looking uh, at the hemoglobin, see if there's been any drop. It could be a sign of bleeding. Um, uh, send some liver enzymes, including a bilirubin, ASD, and ALD, to see the pattern of enzyme elevation and also to see how it had been doing before and trend it against previous labs. Uh, also check the coags, um, and if an INR is going up, that would, uh, you know, ideally you want to see the INR correct with every lab draw after a liver transplant. And what about uh, imaging besides the blood work? Yeah, so after that, we'd, uh, we'd get a duplex. Like I said, the first thing you want to rule out is a vascular thrombosis because that would be catastrophic. So while we are waiting for all this lab work to come back, we typically order a stat duplex of the liver. So they look at the hepatic artery, portal vein, make sure those are open, look at the hepatic veins. Um, they can also assess for any fluid collection or hematoma around the liver. And the reason this is important is uh, though vascular thrombosis is very rare after a liver transplant, it's something that's quite catastrophic and uh, and uh, uh, if we were to reverse it, uh, you'd have to act really early. So that's why duplex off the bat is probably the first test that we would get. If that is fine, then we can move on to other things depending on the index of suspicion. If you're worried about a hematoma, uh, you can start off with a non-contrast CT scan. Um, If there's bile in the drain, then uh, you have to assume there's a bile leak. 
And almost always, we would go back to the operating room to assess the bile duct and repair or revise it. Um, if you're still not certain um, and you're still worried about a leak, you can get a HIDA scan. That will, again, uh, in most instances, show show a leak. Um, and, uh, you know, like uh, in the end, if everything checks out and everything is fine, still the enzymes are going up, then, then you have to worry about uh, reperfusion injury. And I leave that as a diagnosis of exclusion because that's something that you just have to wait out in almost most instances. Uh, but it would be nice to look at the history of the donor and the patient to see if there are any risk factors um, that might be present that would indicate reperfusion. And those would be uh, something like if the liver was fatty, um, if there was a biopsy, see how much macrocytosis there was. Um, look at the age of the donor, uh, cold ischemia time, uh, prolonged cold ischemia time, older age donors and fatty livers are all risk factors for reperfusion. And that's something that typically gets better. And if you're still worried, uh, you can always get a liver biopsy. As a faculty member, when do you want to know about rising LFTs? Do you want to know about any LFTs that are going up? Um, or do you feel like, you know, your residents or um, your residents can wait and call you later? Or how urgent is it if they get some labs back that show this change? So it depends. So most of the time, it's going to be your fellow who sees the patient, and uh, uh, if they're concerned, they will definitely call. If there's anything that concerns them, or if it doesn't make sense, or there's no straightforward explanation, that would warrant a phone call. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty. Uh, most of these patients would get a duplex off the bat, so that rules out anything major. Uh, the other things, you know, you have a little bit of time to figure it out, and uh, generally the fellows are pretty good about working that up. But again, it all depends on the quality of the fellows, how much you work with them, and how much you trust them. Um, so, uh, so that would dictate how quickly you expect a phone call. So, if we have the same patient and now it's post update ten, and we are still dealing um, not with rising LFTs but rising bilirubin, what is your differential at this point of time? Yeah, so um, so that's something that we also see not too often, not too uh, uncommonly. So again, the first thing I want to do is rule out the big bad thing first. So vascular thrombosis is still something that we need to rule out first, um, even though that would be a little unusual this far out, but that's always a possibility. The second thing, especially um, if it's just the bilirubin that's going up, is to um, to assess for uh, a bile leak or a bile stricture, both of which can cause a rising bilirubin. Third thing, uh, especially around this time period, would be acute rejection. Um, and then uh, lastly, um, one of the things that we also need to worry about is could it be recurrent disease, depending on what was the indication for the transplant. If somebody was transplanted for hep C or hep B and they have active disease, then uh, then you need to worry that with the immune suppression that could have caused in, in, in uh, recurrent hep C or hep B, and, and those are something that you need to check for. Uh, a lot of times the patients are uh, potentially discharged at this point, so you may be seeing them in clinic, but what, what is your workup and does that potentially differ from your workup for the rising LFTs? So, yeah, so um, a lot of the times these patients are in clinic. So if, uh, you know, again, you'd like to look at the pattern, see if it's something that's slowly been going up or something that abruptly went up, it'll be nice to look at how their immune suppression levels have been running because uh, if the levels have been low and it's a young, healthier patient, then rejection would be higher on your differential. It's always easy to get an ultrasound as an outpatient, as a stat, uh, and that's an information that you can uh, get 
pretty quickly, and it's something that can be done as an outpatient. Um, if um, uh, and same thing, if the patient has tenderness or you're worried about a bile leak, um, you can also do some tests as an outpatient, like a HIDA or a CAT scan to look for any fluid, um, uh, or even an MRCP or a CAT scan just to look for any biliary dilation, which would indicative of a stricture. If any of those things are present, you may want to admit the patient just to get their second part of the workup done. Um, uh, and if uh, the concern for a bile leak or stricture is low um, and you've ruled out recurrent disease but you are worried about rejection, um, then also it depends on the severity of the enzyme elevation and also your concern. Sometimes you can increase the immune suppression or you can give them uh, a, a steroid cycle uh, if uh, you are pretty confident this is rejection and you don't necessarily always need a biopsy. But if there's any concern at all, then you can get a biopsy. A biopsy is also something that can be done as an outpatient, and you can get the results pretty quickly. But uh, a lot of, at a lot of the centers, these patients would get admitted for further workup. So I think uh, uh, there's a lot of variation in practice based on where you're at. There's no one right way to take care of this problem, but those are pretty much the things and the thought processes that we will go through to work up such a patient. Let's say the patient did come back and there was concern for a bio leak. Do you have a window for when you would either take them back to the OR for repair versus when you may have um, GI try for an ERCP in a stent? Yeah, so that's that's a great question too. I think there's a little bit of controversy, and there's also some variation in practices based on the different centers. So um, uh, for me, it depends on uh, the patient's uh, how the patient looks how soon they present. So if they are visibly uncomfortable and if they have tenderness on exam, you get a CAT scan and they have fluid and HIDA shows a leak. So for me, for that patient, I would just go to the operating room because uh, you need a washout and you need something definitive done. Um, and uh, I would say that for me personally, for most patients presenting in the early post-operative period with a bile leak, it indicates a technical issue. And I think that, uh, well, I personally take them back to the operating room and, and, and take care of it there. There are some centers that have described varying levels of success with doing ERCPs and putting stents in for small leaks, and that seems to work too. But uh, with that, you worry that they may develop a stricture down the road, and then you'd be getting more procedures done. So again, there's a little bit of um, variability in practice based on where you're at and what your experience with that particular problem is at the institution. One last uh, clinical question before we move on to personal things, but there's a rising need for transplant in people with fatty liver disease, and some of these people have had gastric bypasses. So um, when we think about bile leaks uh, in those patients, could you just talk for the students and residents how they may have to think differently about those patients? You mean the patients who've had who might have had a, a, a sleeve procedure as part of the transplant, or have had a previous um, Sorry. gastric bypass? Prior gastric bypass patients, when they have bile leaks or bile duct issues, what what maybe is different about their management? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is that it's not possible to do an ERCP, even if it's duct to duct anastomosis, just because of the anatomy. So for them, you have to rely a little bit on non-invasive testing as well as index of suspicion. Uh, so HIDA is still a good test to look for any leaks. You can always get an MRI and MRCP, which is also a non-invasive way to assess the bile duct. We'll tell you a little bit about the leak, but it's more, uh, I think, more helpful when there's a stricture or narrowing. 
And um, if you're still not certain, I think you can always do a PTC. But that tends to be a little bit more invasive than some of the other ways. And uh, But it does provide the information that you need. Well, thank you for all that information. That was a great clinical uh, case scenario. I would now like to transition to talk a little bit about your personal career and um, I'll start off with the first question. So tell us a little bit about your um, your practice as a transplant surgeon. Um, do you only do livers, donors, um, or do you do other abdominal transplants as well? And like, how does your typical week look like? So I have, a, I have a pretty unique practice, um, and uh, so my practice is about 60% transplant, 40% HPP. Among transplant, I do um, uh, both liver and kidney transplantation, uh, as well as donors, and I do this for both adults and peds. Um, so generally, um, it uh, it all de- the week will depend on the call schedule. So typically, I take call about a week uh, for a liver transplant um, uh, during a month, and about a week for a kidney and donor during a month. Um, during those uh, weeks, essentially, uh, it involves taking care of all the liver patients on the service if you're on for liver transplant, uh, and then whatever liver transplants come, uh, you just uh, do them. Uh, that's true for both adults and peds. Um, I try not to put too many elective HPV cases during that week just because of the uncertainty of transplant, and you don't want to be in a situation where you have three or four big cases in a day, and then there's a liver transplant, so I try to avoid that. Um, but uh, that's pretty much the typical uh, week of a transplant surgeon. You just uh, wait, and uh, sometimes it's not busy, and sometimes it gets really, really busy. Can you tell us a little bit more about your HPB practice and uh, what that looks like and what type of cases you do? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I've always been interested in HPB. That was my first passion, um, uh, and uh, I've worked hard to uh, make sure that that's a big part of my practice. Um, so I do pretty much... Uh, the entire spectrum of HPB, so a lot of liver, a lot of pancreas, maybe a little bit more pancreas than liver, uh, than bile duct cases. Um, and then I also do uh, some uh, uh, foregut with the stomach cancer and other tumors, uh, as well as uh, sarcomas. Um, also, pretty much any big cancer involving different organs that uh, people need help with. Um, uh, I try to do it both uh, open as well as minimally invasive, and among MIS, I do both uh, laparoscopic and robotic. So, uh, you know, in a common week or a common day, I would go from doing maybe a robotic pancreas case, and then the next case would be a big open um abdominal tumor excision with the cable reconstruction and it's just uh, it goes from extremely minimally invasive to extremely maximally invasive and I kind of like that. That for sure is something uh, very very unique about your practice. I like that. Um, I, when I was going through your biography kind of uh, looking at you trained uh, you did your med school back in Pakistan and then you, you transitioned here, did your residency and fellowships uh, in the U.S. Tell us a little bit more about your training. Um, what were the unique barriers that you had to face, uh, maybe some visa issues or um, maybe any tips or uh, tricks that you have for the international med- medical students who are considering uh, a career like yours? 
Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I went to med school in Pakistan. I was a long time back and uh, I really, really liked surgery. And I kind of looked around at the best place to do postgraduate training and I, I looked in Europe, uh, you know, uh, uh, back home and I looked in the States and I realized pretty quickly that the best surgical training at a postgraduate level was in the U.S. So I knew that I wanted to come here to be a surgeon. So it's really hard. Um, well, I shouldn't say really, but it's harder for a foreign graduate to get into a residency program here. It's a little bit of a, um, uh, a little bit of a, uh, uh, of a struggle sometimes. So I applied to pretty much every surgical residency program in the country. I think I got 13 or 14 interviews. Most of them were for preliminary spots. Um, uh, I did all of those interviews, and I think I matched uh, somewhere towards the end of my list, uh, which actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise later. So I matched at Brown University in Rhode Island as a preliminary uh, intern. So what that means is that I was uh, uh, non-designated, so I just had a one-year spot uh, as an intern, and there was no guarantee that I would be allowed to continue uh, training. And that's a very common way for foreign graduates to get into the system. So I was on a J-1 visa. So very briefly, uh, when you come for surgical training uh, as a foreign graduate, there are two main types of clinical visas that you can get. One is an H-1 visa. The other one is a J-1 visa. Most programs sponsor a J-1 visa. Uh, the difference is H-1 visa six years, you do your training, and then you're eligible for a green card, and then you're like everybody else. So it's the easier route, but there are not that many options for it. What most people end up doing is getting a J-1 visa. Um, a J-1 visa is a, a student exchange visa, and it allows you seven years of training. And after that, uh, you have to do one of two things. You have to either go back to your country of origin for a couple of years, or you have to work in an underserved area in the U.S. for three or four years. And that makes you eligible to get a green card, and then you're like everybody else. So I was on a J-1 visa, uh, and I was a preliminary intern. I was one out of seven preliminary interns. Um, that year, we took two preliminary interns, and I happened to be one of them for a second-year spot. And uh, uh, as a third year, I was fortunate enough to stay in the program as a categorical. So then I completed my residency at Brown. Uh, I had no exposure to transplant, to at least to liver transplant there. Um, as far as I was concerned, it was... Uh, it was one of those, you know, the liver transplant surgeons were always angry, operated in the middle of the night. The cases took hours, and it involved uh, a lot of blood loss. So I had, it wasn't even on my radar. What I had seen were HPV surgeons, and I really wanted to be one because I thought it was technically the most demanding. Uh, you had a great skill set. Uh, when people were in trouble, they were calling the HPV surgeons to come and help them, and all of that really appealed to me. So I applied, um, again, to all the HPV fellowships in the country. Um, I was very fortunate to match in St. Louis, and there I had great mentors, and it was amazing. Um, so by that time, I had no experience with transplant surgery whatsoever. But then during part of our fellowship, we spent a month on the transplant service, and that's something that really opened up my eyes. Um, I had amazing mentors, uh, with Dr. Chapman, Dr. Doyle, uh, who are just great people and were really welcoming and really uh, great teachers. And a few things became very quickly apparent to me, and that, again, is my own personal observation, doesn't mean that everybody has to agree with them, was that HPB um, uh, was great, but it had its limits, and where those limits were reached, that's where transplant surgery began. 
um, a lot of cases that were considered unresectable on HPV were actually resectable in the hands of transplant surgeons. And those were cases that have vascular involvement that required some reconstruction. Um, and and uh, even beyond that, cases like unresectable hyalurcholangiocarcinoma, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma in cirrhotics, all those were cases that... Um, that uh, you know you didn't have a good surgical fix, but transplant was a great option and they had great outcomes. Um, and also, um, I really did feel that that the technical skills were completely different, and they were just the next level uh, with transplant surgeons. And and for me, it was an easy decision that if I had to be a good HPV surgeon, for me, I had to do transplant as well because that was the complete spectrum of HPV. Um, so that's what I ended up doing. Um, I didn't have much time left on my visa, so that was my sixth year for HPB, and then I had one year left. Um, so I talked to uh, my mentor at WashU, Dr. Chapman, and he found me a spot in uh, in Baylor, in Texas, where I did a, a, a second-year transplant surgery fellowship. Uh, they, one of their fellows had dropped out, so I was there for one year, and it was amazing. I loved it. Um, and uh, I did all my case volume. Everything was all set, but I was still on the J-1 visa. So despite um, there being a job there for me, I couldn't work it with the visa because I was done with the seven years and I had to um, pay my time back. So I ended up leaving all that and going to Wisconsin. So there was a small town called Marinette, Wisconsin. It was about an hour north of Green Bay, population 10,000. So for the next four years, I worked as a general surgeon there and I did pretty much everything under the sun surgically except for transplant and HPV. Um, but it was a great experience. Um, I did uh, pretty much everything, and I really honed my laparoscopic skills with colon resections and hernia repairs and whatever I could do. Um, I also used my transplant skill set to do a lot of vascular, so I was doing uh, some uh, carotid, some uh, aortic aneurysm, some peripheral disease, and, and that really gave me the confidence to, to, um, to, uh, to, to, to get better, I feel. Um, the plan was always to come back into academics um, once I was done, so I stayed in touch with my mentors. And once my uh, four years in the in Marinette and Green Bay, uh, sorry, in Wisconsin, were done, I got my green card, so my visa troubles were behind me. Uh, but uh, what I needed was I still needed to complete one more year of fellowship training because uh, in order to get ESTS certified by the by the by the transplant uh, uh, board in the U.S. So I talked to Dr. Chapman, and he uh, and and uh, basically I ended up coming back to complete my fellowship. It was a little bit of a difficult decision because you know you're you're pretty much your own boss for four years, and it's great working in a small town. Uh, you have you're very busy, you're doing great, people look up to you, um, and you're kind of a king in a small hospital, and it feels really good. Uh, but then leaving all that and coming back again as a trainee was was a little bit hard. But I was fortunate that uh, I had great mentors, so it it it, it all worked out on that end. Uh, what it also allowed me to do was that I was a lot more confident than I would have been otherwise. So I was doing a lot of the cases on my own. So in a way, I overcame a lot of my learning curve during that fellowship. Um, the other thing that uh, happened was very fortunate in, in, in retrospect uh, was that uh, uh, I had some time 
to me to do some additional things. So I took some time off and I did um, uh, three months of robotic HPB uh, with John Martini in Carolina because I felt that that was the future of HPB. And so far, I had zero experience in robotics. So I did that. I learned the basics of robotics there, which was great. Um, and I also ended up uh, going to uh, Korea to learn a little bit about a living donor liver transplant and, and how they operated. And I thought that was a great experience too. Um, so once I completed my fellowship, uh, I was fortunate there was an opening that opened up at WashU, and I ended up joining the transplant staff there and uh, and uh, with a practice in both HPV and transplant. So I ended up in my dream job in the end, but it took a long, long time, but it was all completely, totally worth it. Do you have advice that you would give to anyone interested in transplant in general, or if you want to make it more specific for people perhaps uh, with visa issues? But either way, something that you would want to share as kind of your parting words of wisdom to the, the audience. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think um, you know, I think uh, the first thing is you need to know what you want. Um, I think uh, there are issues that you can resolve, and then there are issues that you can't resolve. A visa is an issue that is there, whether you worry about it or not. It's something that you have to work around. Um, um, I think it's important to know what you want. You know, if you're interested in transplant alone, if you want to do HPB and transplant, because that will change uh, how you will go about things. Um, you know, the path that I took to overcome my visa issues was probably the most uh, uh, torture, most uh, uh, complicated path that you can take. There are ways out of it. Um, you know, people can extend their visas, go on different types of visas, and, and, and all sorts of things that may make the duration shorter. But I think that one thing that you shouldn't take a shortcut on is training. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, if you want to be a surgeon, you have to put in the time. You have to go to the best possible program that you can. Um, just work hard. You know, this is a great country. I think uh, um, uh, one of the great things about it is that uh, it appreciates hard work. You come here, you work hard, you show that you're interested, you're motivated, and you're dedicated. And doors that you never thought would open magically open for you. Uh, there are people who will take you under their wing who will uh, be your mentors and they will push you every step of the way. It happened for me and it happened for pretty much every every person who comes here from another country and, 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 and ends up being successful in surgery. So don't, don't worry about those things. The things that you need to worry about is just coming in, getting your foot in the door, and then working harder than you've ever worked. Have a smile every day. Just show up earlier than everyone else. Go home later. Be eager to learn. Know what you want and just go for it. And, and I guarantee that things will open up. Well, that was great advice, Dr. Khan. Uh, we really appreciate you taking time uh, going through this case scenario and answering some of these uh, personal questions. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Until next time, dominate the day. 